Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Lionel Barber. I'm the editor of the Financial Times, and I'd like to extend an, a very warm welcome to you uh, for this session. Pre-Davos predictions. We have a stellar panel uh, gathered here to my side, and I'm going to introduce them in a minute. But for, first, let me just uh, say a, a big thank you to Editorial Intelligence for helping us to stage this this meeting, and also offer you a, I know it's a little late, but a warm, happy new year. Thank you very much. Uh, I mentioned the Stalla panel. To my immediate left, Ambassador Lewis Sussman. He has been the ambassador to the Court of St. James um, since July 29th, or August, he was sworn in in July. He's a um, banker with tremendous experience. Uh, I've known him for quite some years. He's been a good friend and a great mentor. He worked at Citigroup. Uh, He also practiced law in St. Louis, and he's been very involved over the years in the public sector in the States. Uh, The next speaker will be Guy Elliott. He's the chief financial officer of Rio Tinto. He's uh, been in that post Uh, since 2002. So he comes with immense experience working for a global company uh, with great exposure to the commodity (coughs) sector. Our next speaker will be Loretta Napoleone, economist and best-selling author, who's written a number of books with brilliant titles, Terror Incorporated, Maonomics, Rogue Economics, She uh, is the best-selling author. She's an expert on terrorist financing and money laundering and is a regular media commentator. And finally, uh, to my immediate left, not metaphorically speaking, is uh, Martin Wolf, who needs no introduction. He's the chief economics uh, commentator for the Financial Times and has been writing some wonderful columns on the euro. Now, at this point, I'm going to uh, step back. You'll see that Martin Dixon is in the centre, the deputy editor of the Financial Times. He will be chairing the session. Uh, It's my duty to uh, disappear at this point to testify before the Leveson Committee. (laughs) (laughs) Believe me, I'd rather be here. (laughs) Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you, Lionel, and good luck. Uh, uh, And welcome again, everybody. Um, Let me just go through the format of this morning. Um, Every speaker will give a five-minute introduction on their predictions and key points for 2012. Then I'll try and pull some of the threads together, and then we'll throw it open uh, to the floor. Um, Can I remind everyone this is on the record. It will be podcast. And... um, when we come around to the Q&A, uh, if you could wait for the microphone before speaking, and if you could say who you are. I'll remind you of that uh, when we get on to Q&A. Um, but let's go straight away into the uh, five-minute statements and start with Lewis. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, 
it's, it's a crowd here that could be intimidating if you haven't been before the U.S. Congress. Um, I would like to say that uh, I've been ambassador for uh, two and a half years, and I can't imagine a, a greater ride of both uh, difficult times and exciting times. We've gone from a Eurozone crisis to a um, royal wedding. I've gone from an Arab Spring to a state visit, and looking forward uh, in 212 to obviously many geopolitical events as well as the Queen's Jubilee and the Olympics here. Uh, that being said, I think it's uh, fair to say that we are in for, um, at the minimum, interesting times and potentially turbulent times. Uh, potential chains of governments. I've heard a rumor there's an election in America hmm. and that um, uh, election in France. And um, the whole world will be looking about how we deal with these issues before us. And while we have many foreign policy issues, I think in my prediction, the three things that are uh, front and center for America and for me is the economic world. We have three major issues, obviously. The Eurozone crisis, we have the United uh, Kingdom economy, which uh, is crucially important to America as our largest trading partner, and we have the U.S. economy. Uh, what does all that mean? Uh, quickly on the Eurozone, America is extremely disappointed uh, because we believe the problem has not been solved. Uh, we feel that um, many members of the Eurozone, uh, and in particular the two leading members of France and Germany, believe they have solved it or substantially solved it, uh, but we don't see it. Uh, we don't think that there's been enough protection of firewall, as we call it, to um, uh, stop continued contagion. We still worry about the recapitalization of the banks. Uh, and on top of all of that, uh, uh, where's Greece going? Um, so we look for the year to come as an interesting debate, if you want to put it in diplomatic terms, between those that think they've solved it and they're moving along, and those where it hasn't been solved, and what will happen, and is uh, sustainable interest rates in southern European countries uh, going to work. In the United Kingdom, from our viewpoint, uh, it's a very, very important uh, uh, country for America. Uh, I would tell you that um, I have told the Chancellor and the Prime Minister, as has the President and our Secretary of Treasury, that we are in great admiration of what they're trying to do. Wouldn't we all love to cut our deficits to zero in four to five years? But what the outcome of that will be in terms of ability in defense areas and aid areas and how it will affect the world economy, I believe that we're going to have to wait and see. And uh, I feel that um, that's very, very important to see how this plays out over 212 and going forward. Last but not least is the American economy. Uh, I think it is fair to say by all pundits and economists that we have some recovery. It's fragile. The numbers are certainly uh, better on unemployment uh, and better in investment. Uh, we are looking to um, grow at 2%, approximately 2% in 212. And it's important to us that we don't get any shocks, earthquakes, like a potential disaster in the Eurozone that could 
deeply affect us. But we're on the track. I think our biggest worry and our biggest concern prediction-wise is will political judgments overrule sound economic judgments in an election year? And that is a deep concern. Uh, I want to conclude uh, by um, saying that my biggest prediction is the fact that as we have seen in 211, and I'm sure we're going to see more of in 212, the watchword, the philosophy that's going to govern so many things from politics to um, economics to geopolitical events is the word fairness. Fairness is the key word. We see that people here in the United Kingdom, I believe, are uh, symbolic of Britain's um, spirit when they're willing to take cuts and they're willing to uh, face up to the fiscal problems if it's fair. In America, 99-1 is all about fair. In, in the Tea Party, they're angry. They don't think it's fair. They think the system's rigged against them. In Russia today, Okay, the uh, protests are, not, are based on the fact that they now have a government. It's going to be the same as the old government. We can't make a living. It's not fair. Okay, it's not fair. Uh, we saw in economic areas and in, uh, in the revolutions of Egypt and the revolutions in Tunisia and in other places, they said we can't make a living. There's corruption. We're not treated fairly. So my judgment, this whole concept of whether the world will become fair, will people be able to say with some degree that we're all sharing the burdens of the problems and hopefully we all will benefit from the successes as they may be. So I think that's going to be uh, my prediction. I will add with one last footnote, uh, being American, this won't surprise you, uh, I have great confidence, great confidence, that both the resiliency and the um, uh, the brilliance and the history of both the American people and the British people is that I have optimism that at least on most of the world we'll get it right and I'm very confident about it. Thank you very much. Lewis, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Guy, over to you. Uh, thank you very much. Um, good morning everybody. Um, I have um, to start by saying that whatever I predict uh, will no doubt turn out to be uh, overtaken by events that we can't foresee. I mean, that's obviously the lesson of 2011, where we saw all kinds of huge events like the tsunami and the Arab Spring making everybody's predictions look, with the benefit of hindsight, um, foolish. But uh, nevertheless, I'm going to try and make some predictions. I don't think any of them are madly controversial. I mean, if we look at what the consensus view of, um, of growth is likely to be um, this year, it is that, um, that the Europe will experience a mild recession and that uh, the U.S. will manage to avoid a double dip and that China will have a soft landing. And with minor variations, I would agree with that consensus. But we can't rule out the risk of things getting far worse than that consensus implies because of the various tensions that exist, particularly over sovereign debt, um, particularly over the imbalances and the political transitions of which there are a large number. Uh, I, I use the word transition because in some cases, of course, it's not an elected change. So all of these translate into an environment where we see elevated downside risk as the most probable 
outcome for this year. Especially so because the freedom of manoeuvre in in many Western countries is much more limited than it ordinarily would be in difficult times. And that is so because, of course, interest rates have been reduced so much. So what we're really worried about, and this is hardly controversial, and and, um, we're going to hear uh, from others later, uh, much more knowledgeable than me about this, um, is is the problems in Europe. And um, the quantum of, of refinancing that governments need to do uh, and also the banks need to do over the next two years is truly um, gigantic and uh, represents a a huge challenge for the system to absorb. Um, It's possible to see how countries can manage currency transition and reschedule sovereign debt. I used to live in Brazil and I saw that happening. It can be done. Um, It sometimes takes a long time. But what is much more difficult to know is whether such a feat can be managed within a currency union. Uh, And so with political coordination of this kind proving extremely difficult, we think that it's quite unlikely that we see an early resolution of this European crisis. So we think that, that, uh, that markets are going to be pretty sensitive to developments, particularly in Europe, but also in the U.S., And so, therefore, we're going to see a continuation of the volatility that we have seen in the later part of 2011. And that would apply to many parts of the markets, um, including the commodity markets. The fact is that we are in a a state now where, during the 80s and 90s, we saw periods of prolonged expansion, much longer than had been experienced over the previous 150 years or so. So we're, we're, we've become rather too accustomed to long periods of expansion. What we're now seeing is a return to much more volatile uh, conditions. And I'm afraid that volatility hits confidence, and it hits confidence in equity markets, in, in uh, debt markets, and in M&A, all of which, if, if it dries up for any length of time, does hit economic activity. Now, there is an offset to all this, and that is Asia. And um, we think that Um, Well, there is contagion that is at risk because of the situation in Europe. In China, uh, we should see resilience. Um, And we would like to see, we think it would be logical to see, a decoupling between these two places. Uh, But at the moment, I'm afraid that there is an indiscriminate uh, risk-off attitude from from market participants. Um, There are risks in the Chinese um, economy. But we think that the government has the capacity and the will to intervene if, uh, if growth is seen to be slowing too fast. And uh, so that would mitigate the risk that Chinese growth will slow more than is expected uh, in, this, in this year. Now, we have seen some good indicators. Inflation has been lower than was expected. Retail sales have been higher than was expected in recent times. Uh, the PMI, the, the um, Purchasing Managers Index, recently was quite uh, Im- encouraging. But on the other hand, there have also been continued uh, worries about property markets uh, and industrial production has also been below expectations. So um, this is not a, an unqualified um, picture of, um, of brightness. And we certainly see that the first quarter of this year is likely to be weak in China. But... Um, uh, given these, in relation to inflation, somewhat better um, conditions, 
we do think that the government has some room to move and that therefore uh, it will support a growth rate and make sure that they end up with a growth rate for this year in the region of 8%. Now, it's important to understand that this coincides in China, as in a few other countries, with a very important political transition. And this transition is going to be completed by the end of the year in China. And I think that this is not a time at which we're going to see dramatic new policy initiatives taken. Uh, The words prudent and gradual are being used by the Premier to talk about easing and helping the economy make this transition. So the focus will be on social and political stability. So that, that, that it is for that reason above all that we think that things will, be, will, come pretty, will come out pretty well in China relative to other parts of the world. I think there is a challenge that China has, which is, is the transition from its current infrastructure-led, export-led um, growth to one which is consumer-led, and that's going to take some time to achieve, and reform is definitely needed in the Chinese economy, otherwise we're going to have... Uh, further issues lying ahead. Um, it's already been referred to how many different uh, transitions we're seeing in various countries around the world, um, politically speaking, and I think that that, or, that introduces great uncertainty. But it is possible that we are, if, if I look at the picture I've painted, it would be, it would be wrong to, to, to end without some note of optimism. And I think that one has to attribute quite a low probability to a very good outcome here. But, but the fact is that where everybody is saying that the world is about to end, uh, pricing of assets becomes too low, perhaps. And so there are possible upsides. And the ambassador just referred to some of the recent statistics in the US, which he said were fragile. And I agree with that. But nevertheless, they are positive. And uh, I, I, when I look at the balance sheets of the US um, corporate sector, not the financial sector. It is tremendously strong. There is between $1.5 and $2 trillion which sits in the S&P 500. That money is, on the whole, sitting on deposit or being used to buy back shares. It's not being invested in capital expenditure on a major scale, nor in M&A. And the reason that it's not being invested is that confidence is lacking, and it's lacking on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, I don't say that it's probable that that condition is going to change, but it might. And I think there's a, there is some small probability that we do see that, uh, that beginning to take effect, which, if, if it did, of course, would greatly increase confidence. But for the moment, I'm afraid that the base case is very much weighted on the opposite side, where people remain nervous, in our opinion. And the only good thing that we see, really, is the probable uh, achievement of an 8% growth rate uh, in China. Thank you. Guy, Guy, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Loretta, what are your predictions? (laughs) Right. Thank you. Well, um, I am pessimistic. I think it's very difficult to be optimistic. So I think 2012 is going to be very much like 2011. So great uncertainties, volatilities in the market. But I think, you know, one positive side is that... uh, people are much more realistic about expectation um, in comparison to 2011. What we still uh, think we are misjudging is the root causes uh, of this crisis. 
I don't think uh, we are back at the 1930s as many people believe. I think you were actually inside a major transformation which started in the 1990s. Um, it is a shift in the global balance of power of uh, the world economy, a shift away from the West towards emerging countries, in particular, of course, you know, Asia being the most important uh, continent uh, in the world. Um, so... Because of that, I think um, that the contraction that we will see in 2012 in Western economies is not going to be as negative for the world economy because countries as China, as Guy just mentioned, will continue to grow at a sustainable uh, very good level to sustain uh, the world economy. Uh, that doesn't help the West, which is still locked inside this major transformation. Uh, now, without major changes, structural changes, which is a rethinking of the euro, but also the introduction of a new international monetary system, which takes into account the importance that emerging markets are having in the current economy, I am afraid that we are, you know, going towards a major um, impoverishment of the West. So um, unemployment, low rate of growth, uh, social unrest will continue to crowd the headlines of our newspapers. Now, um, having said that, uh, I think it's very difficult to make predictions. <laughs> I would say that the best thing is just to look at possible scenarios. And of course, you know, the great uncertainty comes from Europe. Um, I think what uh, we have seen happening in 2011 uh, will continue in 2012, which is the tendency of the core countries of the EU, so we're talking about Germany and France, uh, to uh, get away from the risk uh, of uh, the periphery. Uh, so banking, the banking sector, what they're trying to do is to reduce their exposure to the pigs country. In particular, we're talking about Italy and Spain. Um, now, this is a, a process that most probably will continue for the next three years uh, and will give the possibility to these countries to reduce their exposure. And of course, what we'll see is what we have seen in 2011, uh, um, in particular in the second half, which is Italian banks and Spanish banks buying their own debt. Uh, this is what the European Central Bank uh, is also supporting through a various uh, kind of policy. In particular, we're talking about these three years unlimited bond purchases, which has been offered to the Spanish and the Italians and the rest of the European countries. Now, if all of this takes place in the next three years, I think we'll get to a point in which it will be possible to restructure the euro, uh, even uh, to expel some countries, introduce uh, a two-tier uh, euro, uh, so have a new um, rethinking of the euro. But this can take place only in a certain amount of time, so we can't do it in the next few months. So the risk is still at default. Uh, all of this strategy may collapse because of default. Now, I don't think that uh, Greece is uh, the country that will trigger a major meltdown of the euro because the market more or less has already discounted the fact that Greece is going into default. And, you know, there will be a major, major air cut in uh, the debt of Greece. I think, you know, the real risk is Italy. And I also think that the market doesn't read very well Italy because it's a very complex country. So what is happening at the moment is an austerity, two 
austerity measure, which most probably will be followed by a third one, which will deepen the recession, which is already taking place in Italy. I remind you that Italy hasn't grown for 10 years, so since the introduction of the euro. Um, I think that we may see a contraction of the GDP around 3% in 2012. Uh, we have a chronic uh, lack of liquidity in the banking system, which could become uh, um, an insolvency crisis um, if certain factors take place. For example, uh, one risk is the great exposure that certain banks, for example, Unicredit, have to the former Eastern European bloc, in particular Hungary. And finally, we have the opposition of the unions to the policy carried out by the Monti government, which may well give rise to social unrest in 2012. Um, let me just very briefly explain to you why the market doesn't read very well Italy. Um, I think the market believes that this change in leadership um, as brought about a new policy. In reality, the Monti government is constantly held a ransom by the Berlusconi coalition in Parliament. And this is why we have not seen the introduction of a wealth tax, which could have reduced both the budget deficit and the national debt very, very quickly, without no impact on the economy. Now, Italy is a country where the income distribution is very similar to the U.S. We have 1% of the population which holds 45% of the wealth of the nation. A 5% wealth tax would have cut the relationship between the national debt and the GDP drastically. Now, that has not been done because Parliament will not approve that. So I think in this context, any major event in Italy, which could be the failure of one of the major banks, for example, Monte di Paschi di Siena, or massive social unrest, as we have seen in Greece, could trigger a no-confidence vote um, towards Italy, in which case you know, we may uh, even face a scenario of Euro meltdown. So I think this is the area. Um, the other area that I think will have an impact upon Europe and the recession in Europe and make also the austerity um, measure much more harder to bear is the Middle East. I don't think that Iran and Israel are the countries to watch closely. I think we should watch Syria and Yemen. Um, a, a revolution, a democratic revolution similar to the one we've seen in North Africa in this country could uh, feel a contagion to Saudi Arabia. If this happens, and the rest of the Gulf states, if this happens, we may have an oil shock, uh, which will have a tremendous impact on Europe because of the dependency that we have to Saudi Arabia. Now, the U.S., of course, is not going to be so badly affected because the U.S. Um, is gaining independence uh, from uh, oil coming from the Gulf, uh, uh, thanks to fracking, and you know, is en route you know, to actually become self-sufficient. So I think you know, that particular situation could have a tremendously negative impact on Europe. So overall, I think we are locked into this transformation, and this transformation can be 
radical, drastic, dramatic if we face a default. If we don't, if we can manage to postpone the restructuring of the euro, which will have to take place within the next three years, and all of these adjustments will take place, I think, you know, we will not face a dramatic change. But in one case or another, I think, you know, we have to rethink the role that the West is having in the world economy for at least the next 50 years. Thank you. Hmm. Loretta, thank you very much. Martin, over to you. Okay. Um, I was struck by the optimism of the last remark for the next 50 years. It's forever. It's forever. Uh, the Western yeah. anomaly is over. Yeah. Uh, that's the really important point. Mm. Uh, and my God, was it an anomaly. <laughs> now, um, I never forecast, especially the future. Uh, and... Uh, I'm uh, fortunately not paid enough to forecast, and, and I'm not foolish enough to forecast, so I'm not going to do so. Um, but I'd like to start off by, uh, which really underlines, uh, I think it's Aretta's uh, point, a simple pair of statistics, which I think are the most extraordinary, which uh, will appear in tomorrow's column. Um, <laughs> between 2007 and 2012, according to the IMF, the economies of emerging Asia, which contain, I'm sure you all understand, half of humanity, uh, um, will expand in real terms by 50%, 2007 to 2012. Over the same period, the advanced countries will expand, if we are lucky, by 3%. Think about it. <laughs> Five years. So with that background, and it is obviously the most important background, let's think about what is uh, likely to happen. And here I concur, likely, the most probable, with the broad consensus. Um, emerging countries are going to continue to grow relatively rapidly. Um, the Asian countries will lead, uh, but growth is going to slow a bit. Uh, there are a number of reasons for that, mostly internal to the emerging countries, but also obviously affected by what's happening in the developed world, particularly Europe. Um, forecasts of growth for uh, China of about 8 India of 7.5% seems quite perfectly reasonable. Europe, Eurozone will be in recession. Uh, almost every country in the Eurozone that matters will be in recession. The UK will be very lucky if it's not in recession. Um, Europe is dismal. The US looks as though it's going to grow to 2.5%. That seems a plausible uh, sort of view. It doesn't seem crazy. And it's just more of the same, somebody has said. So that's the first main point. What are the upside risks? What could go right? Because we always think about what could go wrong. I think if Anatole were on this panel, he would be telling us about how gloomy we are and how ridiculous this is. So uh, um, his counterintuitive assumptions aren't always right, but they're always provocative. Well, I don't see much upside on the emerging world. It's doing great. If it continues like this, maybe China will grow 9%. And what's the difference between 8 and 9%? It's incredible anyway. Um, in the, what would be the upside risk on the Eurozone? Well, I suppose the risk would be that people conclude that despite the fact that there is obviously nothing like a credible plan, that in practice, that's obvious to anyone who thinks about it for approximately a second, that the, that 
The ECB is determined to do whatever is required to keep these countries liquid. I think that's quite plausible under Mario, who has uh, proved very encouraging and very devious, as I would expect of, <laughs> of a Venetian. Uh, the, the, um, uh, and in the end, despite the huffing and puffing, Germany knows that if the Eurozone implodes, it's finished. It's got a 10-year agony in front of it if the Eurozone implodes. It's not that Germany couldn't survive that in the end, but it will be a 10-year agony. And so between the two, these two real realities, the markets are going to include this, this thing is going to be kept on the road. And that will give them some comfort. And, and, uh, um, and just one little footnote on the point Loretta made. It's absolutely clear that the financial sector in the Eurozone is currently disintegrating, as she describes. But, of course, it doesn't mean that, that the cross-border risks are disappearing. They're all being concentrated within the ECB. Uh, the Germans are well aware of this, and they're accepting it. That's really interesting. They are accepting it. <coughs> then on the U.S., well, at some point, this famous cash mountain, which, of course, in the corporate sector, which was, of course, what the fiscal deficits were designed to achieve, right? That's what they're there for, uh, um, will be spent. Unfortunately, I sort of think it'll be spent abroad. But it's possible that some of it will be spent at home. So there, there are upside risks in the U.S. Maybe it will grow more than 3%. People will start feeling, and in the Eurozone. The downside risks have now been discussed at nauseam. They go without saying. Uh, there are default, major defaults in the Eurozone, major collapses of banking systems. The squabble in the ECB becomes completely uh, poisonous. Uh, the politics of continuing support in Germany become impossible and the Eurozone implodes. This is, I think, a perfectly likely outcome at some point in the next five years, but I suspect not next year, or this year, sorry. But it's obviously a risk there. There's obviously a risk that the US will return to recession. Confidence is incredibly fragile. Major financial problems in any significant banking institution. More real problems in Congress. God knows what the, the election will look like at the end. At the moment, it looks as though it's going to be Harvard against Harvard, but who knows. Um, uh, there's a risk uh, there. Um, a risk we haven't discussed at all, but it's been out there, people have been talking about, again, I don't think it's significant over the next year, is all this central bank money will finally create inflation. Mm. I think actually there's all this central bank money and the deficits <coughs> will finally create inflation. About 2030 is my guess. But <coughs> this is the old lie. Things happen in economics logically in the end, and much later than you think. But, I, but that's obviously a, a small risk there. Final downside risks. Um, things could obviously go very wrong in emerging countries. These are all fragile structures. They're not really, I think, deeply dependent on what happens in the West, but they're very dependent on what happens inside them and how they manage the very complicated economic and political transitions they're involved in. China looks robust politically. It looks as though it can manage its financial problems. It doesn't owe any money to anybody else, and its government is the most solvent on earth. But obviously things can go wrong when you're managing the extraordinarily complex transition of their economy and society that they're involved in. And if you say there is a small percentage point risk it will go wrong in any one year, it could be this year. 
I think that's the lessons one learns from political fragility. Things can go wrong quite unpredictably, and I think they're inherently unpredictable. You just can say there's a certain probability that things will go wrong. There's a commodity shock risk. I think it's pretty minor. But if there's a serious disruption in the Middle East, uh, the commodity shock risk becomes significant. Um, and oil is still a very, very important commodity. And if it goes through the roof, we have a very big problem. So that's where I uh, will leave us. There are some upside risks. Things could go right this year, rather better than we think. And there are some pretty obvious downside risks. So this just comes down to the proposition that probably going to be more of the same but the variance of possible outcomes is extremely large and I do understand why people feel uncertain about the future because if they didn't they didn't understand what's going on (laughs) Martin thank you very much indeed Uh, I think gloom predominates uh, among our panel Um, I'd just like to start by picking up on something that Lewis said which is that fairness is the key word politically uh, this year, and just ask our panelists in the West um, to what extent are governments being effective in uh, trying to cr- create a fairer society? And um, I'd put this in the context quick plug for the FT's Capitalism in Crisis series, which started this week, uh, of which this is one of the themes. Martin, perhaps I could start with you. I, try, I think, actually, I've never written a column with the word fairness in it. And since I've written a very large number of columns, that's quite an achievement. I've written lots of w- columns about with the word inequality in it. I think I can sort of understand what that means, though there are about 575 de- ways of defining it. Um, the problem with fairness, first of all, I agree. It's an important concept. Nobody who's had children doesn't understand that fairness is a very important concept. And people know very well when it's unfair. Unfortunately, my children didn't always agree on what was unfair. And that's the difficulty about doing anything about it. Because people's conceptions of justice, which underline the notion of fairness, are very variable. And part of what's going on here is, I think, the the absolute absence of a consensus in many of our societies on what fairness means. Um, That's, I think, very, very important. And I think that's part of the debate in the U.S. to a lesser degree here um, about rewards related to effort and so forth. So it's a very big issue, yes. It's clearly very contested and contestable. Uh, and it will infuse our politics. What I tend to think is, since we're not going to reach agreement, it seems to me, on what fairness is, that politicians may be able to to do enough about what most people would agree are egregious unfairnesses, uh, namely extraordinary rewards for extraordinary failure, uh, for example, uh, and... uh, Uh, to a sufficient degree to make the underlying consensus of Western social uh, Western social market economies if I may use this term to workable and it doesn't seem to me that what's going on at the moment is so profound an assault on the underlying legitimacy of our systems as to question their ability to function provided politicians can do enough to assuage people's rage about the most obvious forms of grotesque unfairness. Thanks. Loretta? Yeah, I mean, it's a very difficult concept to 
to define. Um, I think that the European population and in part also the U.S. population perceived the last uh, 10 to 20 years uh, as a period in which politicians have not pursued uh, fairness. Uh, so democracy today is much weaker than it was 20 years ago. Uh, we have the various movements, the indignados in Europe, the Occupy, you know, Wall Street and the rest of the world, um, which are coming from uh, young people, which clearly they perceive their condition as a condition unfair vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, you know, the condition of their parents at the same age. I don't think we should undervalue the importance uh, of this movement. Um, in Spain, for example, the indignados uh, have 85% uh, support from the population, which is you know, extraordinary, uh, because people identify uh, with what they're saying. Uh, um, but at the same time, of course, you know, people would like things to change. So they would like different type of politician. Personally, I think uh, the, mm, the politicians we have at the moment uh, are not uh, very inspiring. Uh, we need uh, uh, major changes. Uh, uh, we need people that can uh, project a vision of a future uh, and sell that vision not through marketing but through ideas uh, to the people. Uh, unfortunately, we do not have anybody like that. Um, Obama was the great hope uh, that then you know turned out not to be exactly what we wanted because people's expectations are very high because we will want major changes. So uh, this is going to be a major issue um, in the near future, and it's going to affect uh, um, election. Now, the, fear, the, the negative side, uh, because you always look at the negative side, is the fact that people may become disenchanted with mainstream politicians and start looking more and more at the populism coming from the extreme right uh, or possibly even from the extreme left. Uh, we're seeing what is happening in Scandinavian countries, also in Germany, you know, Middle Europa, Hungary. Very good example of something like this. Now, that, in that, I would agree with who says that we are going towards the new 1930s. Now, on that particular topic, yes. Thank you, Larson. Guy. Well, I, I mean, I agree with what's been said. I think this is a this is a very difficult time for political leaders because they they clearly have to deliver some very unpleasant uh, cuts in uh, uh, in in what people expect. And people have have, have all over Europe and and in other places come to expect uh, rewards of various kinds that unfortunately cannot be afforded anymore. And it may seem unfair to take that away, but I'm afraid that a lot of it is going to have to be taken away. And um, the, Mary Monty used the words I read today in, in the FT, no, nothing is taboo. And I think that w w leaders are going to have to take uh, their populations with them and persuade them that certain things are going to have to change. And I'm afraid that, that some, sometimes that's going to seem unfair and it's going to be a great task to, uh, to bring through, through a democratic process that to fruition. Um, all of us would want it to be fair. And I think that that uh, understanding that and projecting it is, is critical. Thanks. Lewis. I guess I started something. Uh, <laughs> uh, I hope uh, I can end it. Uh, I disagree with Martin in that um, the, the problem is we can't define unfairness. I think we don't, the problem is we don't know what to do about it. That's the problem. 
we can have differing d degrees of of concern of what's unfair or what but it's it's out there ladies and gentlemen it's out there and it's becoming exceedingly corruptive in in how people act uh, i am in uh, a shocked if i would have told you uh, predicted five years ago that a conservative um, uh, Tory government here in UK would be talking about capping pay. I mean, that, that's stunning when you think about it. Uh, and the fact is, is that in Egypt, uh, th that revolution didn't have anything to do with religion. It didn't have anything to do with Al-Qaeda. It had to do with the fact that people thought they were getting, if you'll pardon my expression, screwed. There was corruption. They couldn't make a living. A fellow in Tunisia put himself on fire that started it all because he had to pay a bribe to exist. <coughs> so um, I, my point being is, is that I think the question will be is how the leaders of our world uh, deal with it. I don't have the answer. I wish I did. Uh, but I do know that when you see in America uh, on the left a very liberal view of the, um, the protesters in Occupy Wall Street and you see anger and unfairness on the right with the Tea Party, there really isn't that much difference. There really isn't that much difference. I would only like to add, if I could, uh, Martin, the fact that I am not prepared to write the obituary of the West yet. Uh, I think that um, the problems uh, that um, in the East are not to be under, um, not to be overlooked. And I would say the major problem in many parts of the country and in the East is corruption. In India, it's the single biggest threat to democracy, is corruption. Same could be true in said about in other areas, whether it's Korea or uh, places that um, are the emerging markets. Uh, everybody's looking to the fact that ca can they sustain this endemic problem uh, of corruption. Uh, and you look even in China, look at the protest in that one province. They were saying that they were taking their land and they were selling it to developers and the government was making, local government was making all kinds of money and we were these little peasants and they're taking our land. It's unfair. It was corruption. Uh, so I would um, end on my point that um, I think that the many policies are going to be driven by what happens in terms. I think in Iran, which I don't see a revolution coming, but if one does come, it'll be because the people don't have enough food, because they feel the uh, Revolutionary Guard is corrupt. They will feel that they can't even get oil, which they have to import. So that's my general thesis. I think what everybody said is it's, it's, you've got to be careful that the light at the end of the tunnel isn't another train, and we hope it's a light. <laughs> Thank you, Lewis. Um, let's uh, throw it open to the floor. Um, hand going up here immediately. Thank you very much, and thank you to the panel. It's Tony Gillen from the Institute of Ideas. My question to the panel is, is it possible to hasten transition? Everyone has identified that we're going through an important transition. There seems to be a lot of fear about the consequences of that transition. Uh, 
Could any actors do things differently to hasten that transition? And are we too fearful? Uh, no one wants chaos. No one wants things to be completely out of control. But are we too fearful of moving forward? Thank you. Um, Martin, perhaps I could start uh, with you on that. God. Um, we talked about a lot of different transitions, I think, um, and uh, some of them concerned um, transitions from um, old to newer political and social systems within countries, and that's presumably what uh, the Arab, what's going on in the Arab world is about, and it's certainly something that... Uh, uh, well, in the case of China, we're just talking about the transition from one bunch of unelected bureaucrats to another bunch of unelected bureaucrats, very competent unelected bureaucrats, I should say. Um, but one can certainly imagine transitions at some point to somewhat different social political system in China. Um, I'm not going to focus on that because I think there are other members of the panel who are um, more competent to talk about specific issues uh, um, there. I'm going to make a little footnote about corruption. I'm going to let's have some provocation. I regard the American electoral system as completely, <laughs> fundamentally, and totally corrupt. Uh, I'm not sure and, I disagree. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm just starting, but that's enough. Uh, uh, and what's more important, much more important, is lots of people in emerging countries think the same thing. And that's very disturbing if we think of ourselves as a model. I'm not going to talk about politics in Europe. Because um, uh, lack of time. Uh, not because I haven't thought about it. And the Berlusconi case is so important. I don't think our politics are fundamentally corrupt, merely fundamentally stupid. That's another issue. Now, the, but there is another transition which we were talking about, which is, I think... I don't think... It can, I mean, hastening is not the right word. It's managing, which I think is perhaps the better word. Um, when I talk about the doom of the, the downfall of the West, I expect the West to remain uh, pretty rich. I don't expect a collapse. Um, I'm not going to get into the 30s parallels because I think we've prevented that by, because of what we've done. Um, but uh, the West contains roughly 12% of the world's population. Uh, and it's declining. I think it's 12 at the moment. And it's not very plausible that 12% of the world's people will run the world for the next 100 years. It's not only merely implausible, it's inconceivable. So we have to get used to a world in which the, the Europeans and their satellites, like the United States, uh, offshoots, offshoots, uh, the great power of North America, don't run the world anymore. Uh, and that we have to share, uh, uh, first share and then increasingly accept the, uh, the, the voice and views of others, which will be immensely potent and with which we will often disagree. Uh, now, I think the most interesting transition uh, is that. Uh, there's been a lot of, there's a lot, vast literature about the interwar transition, which was essentially the transition in the end via a small deviation called the Second World War um, from the UK to the US. Uh, now I think it is obvious, it seems to me 
Of course, things can go wrong. You could imagine something different. But it's almost impossible to imagine that 10 or 15 years from now, China will not be a great power in every possible sense of the world, and it will insist upon being listened to and be more than listened to uh, uh, as such a great power needs to be listened to. I don't think the West has begun to understand what that means. Just not begun to understand what that means. And interestingly, I'm not sure that the Chinese themselves have worked out what it means. Um, India is further back behind this. Now, the next 20 years, there is no important issue in the world, in my view, that will not require any issue, climate, security, economics, increasingly close cooperation between the, the relatively declining West and the rising powers above all China, uh, also obviously others involved. And managing that transition is going to be incredibly difficult. I don't think it's about accelerating it, but we are at the moment way behind the curve. And I'll give you one simple indicator of that. Today, the share of the, just one indicator, the share of the Europeans in the quotas in the IMF is roughly 30%. The share of China is 6 That is not sustainable. And it's going to have to change very, very much more quickly than the Europeans are prepared to recognize. Um, this transition is the big transition we face. We actually haven't done, we collectively, too badly with it. You could imagine far worse relations between the West and this huge rising superpower than they actually have. We've maintained, talking about optimism, we've maintained an open world trading system through four years of immense difficulty. It's an incredible achievement. Um, but this transition, uh, the transition of power in the world and the move towards a more cooperative world system that includes as central players new core countries, uh, non-Western countries, is the great challenge of the next 20 years. for the, And it's the thing we've got to manage. Thank you, Martin Loretta. Well, I, I agree entirely. I think uh, the the key word is to manage the transition because the transition is in place. Uh, I don't think we are prepared at all. I think because to a certain extent uh, we have lived in a bipolar world for so long and then we have lived in a world where the West was uh, still the most important uh, element. You know, it was ruled by the West. That it's very difficult to... Um, think how this multipolar world is going to be. I mean, many people are afraid of China. They think, you know, China will do exactly the same thing that the U.S. and Great Britain did before, which absolutely is not going to be the case. I mean, the Chinese are not interested in colonizing the world or ruling the world. But, as Martin said, it is true that there will be a moment in which this uh, superpower will want its voice to be heard. Now, the key issue is going to be resources. I mean, China does everything for China and nothing for the, for the world. So it will be a very bad leader. Uh, not that the U.S. or you know, Great Britain have been very good leaders either. But we have to get adapted to a world where resources are going to be scarce and there will be a fight for resources. 
So requires a certain kind of preparation, which of course we're not doing it at the moment. Um, if we fail, I am afraid that our role in the world will be greatly diminished, even more than what is happening now. Now, I don't think also that we're going to be poor. I don't think that our children will go and work in China uh, in the sweatshops of the Chinese, uh, as many people believe. Absolutely not. But the way that we manage this transition is going to have an impact on what our future wealth is going to be and our role in the world. And finally, I would say that the euro crisis is a very good example of how unprepared we are. You know, we're still using institutions, we're still using this role of, you know, Western leaders, you know, the IMF, you know, still run by, you know, a French um, former politicians. Uh, we have to listen to the emerging markets, but we also have to give emerging markets a share of the cake. Because if we don't, uh, there is no way that we are going to manage this transition. We also, there is no way that these countries will actually help us as you know we want it. I thought, you know, the way Berlusconi handled the Italian crisis, going to the Chinese and say, "Oh, you know, give us the money. You know, we'll sell you the debt." Being surprised that the Chinese said, "Well, actually, we're not interested in that." I thought it was uh, a very good example of this uh, superiority of the West, of the Europeans, vis-à-vis -vis the rest of the world, which. <laughs> it's out of place. Thank you. <coughs> Guy. Well, look, I, I agree with um, what's been said. I mean, it's, uh, impl implicit in the question was that uh, decisive action necessarily would lead to good outcomes. And I think you have to always... It's always good to be decisive, but it does matter what the quality of the decision is made. And uh, uh, I think that when we look back at the 08 09 period, there was some decisive action, and some of it did contain uh, the problem but only temporarily, and we're back living with some of these consequences. And even in China, where we saw, you know, very, very major changes introduced, they had side effects which we're still living with in China, which are quite difficult to do with, uh, with liquidity. So um, um, it does matter what the decisions that are made are. And I think trying to hasten things in China right now is difficult for the reasons that I tried to describe, where you've got a political transition taking place. And therefore continuity uh, and um, uh, social uh, stability are the absolutely the main requirements, I think. Um, as to the point about the, the transition of power eastward, um, I mean, the fact is that, that in order for powers to rise, others have to fall, and, and, and recognising that they have to fall is a very difficult thing to do. And we went through the business of Britain losing an empire and uh, not having found a role. And, uh, you know, it's taken us many, many years, decades, actually, to get through all of that. And uh, it, what is being asked for here is for Europe to face up to that, and perhaps the United States, too, uh, in some measure. And uh, that is a huge, huge thing to happen. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take some considerable time. Now, can I touch on resource scarcity, which was the other thing that was raised uh, by Loretta? I mean, <coughs> it is true that, um, that in my world, um, the prices of resources have risen a lot. And they are, they're not scarce, not, not metals at least. It is true that, that perhaps oil will, um, will eventually run out. But um, resources, uh, metal resources, are going to, we're going to need twice as much in 10 to 15 years' time as we do at the moment. And uh, that's going to need gigantic investment on the supply side, which will be forthcoming uh, if conditions of confidence return. And so big companies, 
both in oil and gas and in, uh, and in metals, are making those investments. It's not because of geological scarcity. It's because of shortage of money. It's because of political risk associated with making investments in certain parts of the world where people are nervous um, about making those investments because they're not sure what the taxes, royalties and ownership might be. So we're trying to, we and other companies are all trying to work to provide this supply. The intent is certainly not to see a world in which there is conflict over resources. That would be a very, very bad outcome and we should all work hard to make sure that doesn't happen. Guy, thanks. <clears throat> thanks very much. Um, Lewis, Martin's tried to uh, stir things up. Are you going to rise to the bait? Always. <laughs> uh, I would suggest that um, when you speak about a transition, there has to be a, a policy, there has to be a commitment, and there has to be an understanding of how you want to make a transition, and that would hasten it. In America, I feel very strongly that we... Um, uh, have recognized the uh, need to look eastward uh, and to uh, put it in a policy that makes sense for us and hopefully for the world. As you know, we just did our defense budget cuts, and there's been a, uh, an alignment of interest in which we maintain our capabilities in, in Europe and we are still committed to our best allies in Europe, but we moved 2,500 Marines to, uh, to Australia. Uh, we want to be sure there's regional security and we're not underestimating it. I have sat with President Obama and I would tell you that he feels very strongly that America in this world cannot go alone and that we have to have partnerships. Uh, and that's what we think we've seen in Russia when we reset our, um, our uh, relationships there and we dealt with the fact that we had to make a transition. I think we feel very strongly uh, that in China we have to reach out, in India we have to reach out. But again, uh, I apologize uh, for being a one-note Johnny, uh, China, uh, in our policy, in your policy, has got to be fair. I think Loretta said it right. China does what's best for China, okay? whether it's currency, whether it's trade. In the Doha potential um, uh, to make it work and why it did fail, China would not open their products at all, zero. India mentally uh, and Brazil didn't open their products. So this idea of people don't want an advantage. UK doesn't want an advantage. America doesn't want an advantage. But we want a fair playing field. Mm -hmm. And that's the key. And I predict, uh, if I may, that, um, uh, that China uh, will at some point in time uh, to be the power that they want to be are going to have to create a fair, much fairer uh, a playing field. I will end by saying... Uh, if I may put my footnote on, when I agreed with, uh, with Martin as to the corruption in American politics, the corruption isn't that people are worried about ballot stuffing or people don't get to vote or the freedom of expression. The corruption is in money. Yeah. Money. Um, what money can buy uh, and influence. In the state of Iowa, 120,000 people voted in the Iowa caucuses, and all the candidates and their super PACs spent over $15 million. That's corrupting. 
Thank you, Lewis. <clears throat> Next question. There's a lady in the third row here. Thank you. Zania Dormady, Chatham House. I wonder if I might pick up on the same discussion we've been having. Uh, you talk about... Sorry, Martin, you, you, you stated that I think it was the EU have 30% of the votes in the IMF and China has six. I'd like to go back to something that um, Bob Zellick said when he was at the Treasury. Uh, he questioned whether China was a responsible international stakeholder. And so I'd actually like to ask you all, one thing is talking about votes is recognizing China and India and the other emerging markets. But the other thing is, are they ready and willing to share the burdens that come with leadership? And that's a big question in my mind as to whether China and India in particular, but also Brazil, Mexico, South Africa and others, are willing to share the burdens, be that economic or in other resource terms. Thank you. Martin. I'm always going first. I think that's a bit unfair, but you're, you're, the, you're, you're the chairman. It was addressed to you. You're Martin. a chairman. Um, that was a very provocative remark by Bob. Uh, it has, this, this speech has a particular history that it just so happened I met um, Bob in, the, uh, in an aeroplane the day before, the day he was going to deliver this speech. And he, he, and I've known him for some years, as a number of us at the FT have said, he said, ah, he said, Martin, I've got a speech for you. And I looked down and I saw the responsible stakeholder and I thought, what the Chinese are going to think about that. Um, two aspects of this. First, I would argue that by the standards of rising powers, particularly rising powers that for different reasons have a very strong sense of historical grievance, which is not entirely unjustified. I'm talking about China, <laughs> China and India here, which are the ones obviously that matter. Um, I think these countries have been pretty impressively responsible in the last 20 or so years. Um, they haven't pursued uh, military aggrandizement on any large scale. They have opened their economies and their markets. Uh, while Ambassador Sussman is right about China's role in the Doha round, he should perhaps have mentioned that the deal that China agreed to on its WTO accession was staggeringly liberalizing. I mean, just literally unbelievable. I never thought, I followed this very closely. It was an issue I've concerned with for, for 30 years. The, the trade deal that China agreed, particularly on agriculture and accession, was staggering. So they have opened up their economy. They are actually, on most standard measures, the most open large economy in terms of trade in the history of the world. It's quite extraordinary. So I would say reasonably responsible from, uh, um, now we can discuss the details, I'm not going to go into South China Sea security issues, maybe Ambassador would like to deal with that, but I think on the whole reasonably responsible. Of course they're concerned with the development of their own economies overwhelmingly, China looks for China, so what's the difference there? Uh, and since they've got 1.3 billion poor people, many of whom are poor, I think they're quite right to do so. Now, then we get into the sharing of the burdens. I have, I, now, there are security aspects of this I'm going to leave aside. There are real costs involved in, in, in providing security. There are also benefits, and, uh, and the costs allow you to do things which are quite pleasant, like bully people. But, the, but the, uh, leave aside that. What are the other burdens that the West has borne? 
the burden of producing a currency which the rest of the world will buy without limit um, in the certain knowledge that at some point you're going to inflate it away. Uh, is this a burden? It seems a great deal. The Europeans used to take the view that this was, uh, what was the, um, uh, it not, wasn't an unconscionable privilege, it was another phrase that Giscard used of it. Is that a burden? Uh, not obviously. Is opening our markets to Chinese goods a burden? Surely many of us feel that it's a great benefit. So I think we should exa- not exaggerate the idea, either that they've been irresponsible and we've been responsible, or that, that what we're asking them to do is to share in some terrible burdens of world leadership, which are in fact, for the most part, been great benefits to ourselves. I think the right way of approaching this is to say, look, if you become full partners in the system, we treat you equally in the way you treat us, we're all going to gain. It's not going to be agony and pain. It's going to be good. Uh, and what I dislike about the particular slant, I'm not trying to criticize the question too much, is the slant is sort of, you know, would you please come along and share all these terribly difficult and painful things we've borne during our period of immense wealth and power? Um, uh, that, I think, is just not the right way to go about making this argument, and I don't think it's necessary. Thanks, Martin. I'm de- <coughs> Pardon me. I'm just going to um, ask Lewis to respond quickly to that. There's, I can see a substantial number of hands out there, and uh, uh, I'd like to get a few more questions in because we've got... Oh, I, I think, uh, basically, um, the question is, is are the uh, Chinese uh, prepared to step up to the plate and, and, and do what a world leader would do? Uh, on the one hand, we felt um, very gratified... Uh, that China and Russia joined in the um, sanctions in the UN on Iran. That's good, right? Uh, Iran is buying 23, rather, um, China is buying 23% of their uh, oil from Iran. And we're supposed to, uh, it doesn't help the situation. I think that there um, is, it's always in China, the issue is what's best for China. And sometimes I think that gives them the inclination to step up to the plate and be a, a good, a appropriate superpower, and sometimes it doesn't. Right now, the reason we don't have a, uh, a resolution in the United Nations condemning the, the incredible uh, atrocities in Syria is because of Russia and China. Every other civilized country in the world is, is, is backing it. On money... I don't know if we said today, are you willing to pay 30% and let the Europeans pay sick? Would they do it? I don't know the answer to it. All I'm suggesting is is that I think that um, in many ways uh, China's come a long way. Uh, I, I, I agree with Martin. I think India's far behind. I think you ought to look at countries like Turkey. They're coming up fast, too. Brazil. Uh, it's, um, it's amazing what's been accomplished in these countries. Uh, but I think that the issue on will China step up to the plate will be totally um, focused on what they view as best for China only. Thank you. Um, can I take a couple of questions just together to save time? Good morning. Uh, Phil Bloomer from Oxfam. I wanted to ask the question uh, uh, for more detail about the issues of a resource-constrained world social justice and the issue of global governance and how they see that. As we enter a period of increasing and intensifying competition, 
over particular areas of, of resources, and particularly those are, that are most important perhaps to social justice, such as land, water, and the carbon space in the atmosphere. And we enter also a period where global governance is, has an enormous level of tension. Where do you see um, the fora in which this debate is going to be held at, at, at the global level, uh, and particularly between the tensions between East and, east and West? Um, and how do you see uh, that debate playing out over the next period, and what kind of solutions are there for, to prevent a dog-eat-dog, zero-sum game, as we've seen to some extent in trade recently, and much more towards some shared prosperity prospects that will include also the poorest countries? Thank you. Thank you. And then the gentleman towards the back. Um, Angus County, I just had a question about <coughs> equality and fairness in the context of the European Union and the crisis there. Because if we've learned anything <coughs> from the absence of a plan, it's the proof that um, economists have long known that a currency union without a political union and equalisation of the uh, players within it does not work. That's why there is no plan. That's why there can't be balanced transfers between <coughs> rich and poor countries within it. We also know, I think, that you can't bolt on political union a afterwards uh, without forcing it over the heads of people, which would only increase uh, the dangers of resentment and populism that have been uh, mentioned. So forced equalisation uh, is always hostile uh, to freedom over the heads of taxpayers, and I don't think uh, would be fair. Um, it, you know, it's enforcing equality of the outcome uh, on Europe uh, could um, be much worse... I ask, could it be much worse than managing uh, the dissolution of that currency union rather than waiting for it to implode? Taking a political action now to manage that, would that be better uh, than waiting uh, and maybe start again with an argument for, for political union uh, at the beginning rather than force it on us at the end? Okay, thank you very much. Um, two very disparate questions there, one on uh, resource allocation, one on fairness in the EU. Uh, we haven't got much time left, so if you could keep your responses uh, very short. Uh, Loretta, let's start with you. Uh, well, I think the one area where I would invest in 2012 is uh, renewable resources. Uh, that's clearly you know, a sector that is growing and must grow. Um, I agree. There is going to be a short, I mean, I said it before, a shortage of resources. And uh, uh, the example of China is very interesting. China has been investing heavily in renewable resources um, in the last five years. All of a sudden, when they realize that the dependency from uh, oil and other energy um, was impinging uh, on the growth of the country, they decided to invest heavily. Now, there was also some pressure coming from people because of environmental degradation, but I'm sure that the decision was taken on economic issues, not so much on social issues. So, um, yes, I think, you know, this is something that uh, our governments, you know, the West should really think about. Uh, it would be interesting to uh, see what Ambassador thinks about the fracking in the United States, uh, which is... Uh, has nothing to do with renewable resources, uh, and it is going to have a tremendously negative impact on the environment. And yet, economically speaking, it's making the U.S. economy much, much better. So there's a trade-off here. Uh, and again, we go back to, to what we discussed before. We need politicians that can see the future, not, you know, in terms of the next election, but in terms of the next 30 years, because we are in this uh, transition. Um, on Europe, uh, well, 
that's uh, the debate about the optimum currency area where you know of course you know countries can share the same currency either because their economy are incredibly similar or the economy are incredibly flexible which is what is been asked now to the countries of the periphery be flexible meaning you know cut everything you know introduce austerity you know work for less uh, and so on and, and so forth um I agree, it is unfair, but I think the alternative, which is um, even a manageable um, meltdown of the euro at the moment, uh, is actually worse for you know the people. So I think between these two, uh, I would go for the unfairness, at least, as I said before, you know, until we reach a level where you know, this kind of changes, uh, which will have to take place within the euro, uh, can take place without having a major you know, meltdown in the banking system. Uh, let me add that if you look at the balance sheet of the banking, uh, the world balance sheet of um, the banking system, the European banks still account for 50%. Which means that if we have a meltdown of the euro and the European banking system, we're going to go straight into a major, major crisis, possibly even a depression. So uh, I think we have to stick with unfairness at the moment. Thank you. Guy. <coughs> Look, I went to try and uh, answer the second question because I think that um, we've, we've covered it a good deal already. It's a very difficult one. On the first question about the forums that might deal with... Um, resource constraints. Uh, I mean, the first thing is, uh, obviously, we would all agree that we don't want a dog-eat-dog outcome here. That would be very unfortunate. And, and so far, we haven't got any sensible solution to any of the three uh, resources that you, you, you mentioned. Um, I personally would be inclined to a market solution of these, these things eventually, but, but you know, th this has got to be agreed with everybody. And at the moment, more urgent, although not necessarily more important, things are crowding the agenda out. The, these are falling down the agenda and have been for the last two or three years. And until we get a more prosperous environment, I don't think we're going to really, quite frankly, get this further up the agenda to the point where it, it needs to, to, to be addressed. I think something should be said about technology here. I think a lot of money is going into technology. China's been mentioned in the area of renewables. But, but everybody can see that there's a great opportunity to be had here, if we can find a solution to these issues, this is business I'm talking about rather than government. On the question of the forum, um, we have, <coughs> in this discussion so far, been conditioned by past models of how governments relate to each other. Uh, the models basically set up under Bretton Woods and similar uh, entities, which, which really are of quite short historic duration. And when we look at um, how uh, when we look at it from the perspective of Beijing or the perspective of Delhi, you might think that um, new models are needed. Why should we just adjust the percentages of the IMF or, or of the Security Council? Um, <coughs> should, should we not reconsider the whole setup? Um, by the way, sorting out these problems is not just something that's important to us in the West. It's very, very important to those in China too, where the air is very polluted, where water is in some places very short, uh, where land is in some places unusable. So um, these are very important priorities, which I'm quite sure we will be able to find a way through, but it's not going to be easy. And we, we should free ourselves of the constraint of old models. Thank you very much. Martin? Um, okay. Um, 
source is so big, so all I'd say is um, I'm pretty optimistic about the things that are marketable which you can establish property rights so um we'll be we'll be able to fix this the market will will deal with that i think guy's right on that um it might include higher prices than in the past so be it we can adjust around that um uh, local pollution is generally manageable um cross-border and global pollution is just about unmanageable and uh, uh, that means we will fail and are failing to deal with the climate problem, which I happen to believe is a problem. And obviously, one of the problems is that people don't. And the and the oceans is another. Uh, large cross-border um, and global resource questions, which are externalities and therefore can't be dealt with within the market and require global cooperation, we can't handle at the moment. Uh, and that's just the reality. And I think having followed the climate change negotiations, that seems to me where we are. It's pretty depressing. Um, but it's a big challenge for the future. Let me just make a comment on the EU thing. I think it's not quite as binary as you put it, though uh, it's very, very important this. It depends in a way what you mean by a political union. If you mean by a political union, you mean the United States of America as it is now. The answer is that's inconceivable. It was always inconceivable, but I don't think it's necessary. What you need is what I think of as a minimal, a minimum union, which is more than they have now, but much less than that. Um, What would that union have to conclude one, monetary policy is genuinely made for the Eurozone as a whole and not for Germany, a transition that the ECB has still not made. Right. The success of ECB monetary policy will be shown when German inflation is 4 or 5%. This is absolutely serious. Nobody cares about the inflation rate in New York. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, the financial system must be Eurozone-wide. That means you need enough political fiscal backstop to support a Eurozone-wide financial system. You cannot have national financial systems and an integrated capital market in a totally bank-dominated structure, as Loretta has pointed out. The the Eurozone is the world's banking system. God help us. Um, And uh, so that's the second thing. And the third thing is one needs financing of countries in difficulties in serious illiquidity but potential solvent situations like say Italy which is probably roughly four or five times larger than they have now this is very rough Um, with all that it might just might be made to work obviously as it is it can't be Um, the problem is there is no way of disassembling this thing as it is now, though it, you can think about it, which doesn't create, uh, in my view, economic Armageddon. There is just not a way of doing it. We can go through the details of it. So I think, as I've said many, many times, uh, I thought, I've always thought this was a spectacularly bad idea, um, but um, they're doomed to make it work. <laughs> At least they're doomed to make it work. Thank they you. started this thing. They've got to make it work because there's no way back from this, in my view, which doesn't involve a world depression. Yeah. Now, maybe I'm wrong on that. If I'm wrong, I'd like to be that to be proved to me, and in which case, yeah, let's go ahead. Thank you, Martin.
Uh, Lewis. Um, uh, I'm going to uh, semi-pass on the second question on the theory that uh, we're not a member of the EU, uh, <laughs> and so there I shouldn't be uh, so bold as to uh, understand what you have to do to make it work. I do want to say one thing on it very, very clearly. It is extremely important and a high priority of America that the EU be strong and succeed. It helps every objective that we're trying to, to deal with, monetarily, militarily, trade-wise, etc. And I will put a footnote on that, is that we feel that uh, it would be very impossible, it would be impossible uh, to have a very strong EU without a strong uh, British presence. So uh, we feel strongly about that. And whatever the problems are, we're rooting for you to work them out. Um, as to your question about uh, the world, world that we worry about for our children, the climate, the water, the air, the oceans, I think what's discouraging to me is I think we saw a momentum going forward on climate on all of those issues that has now, because of economic stress, mm. has either plateaued mm. or gone down. Uh, I, I'll take my own country. We have an um, important pipeline from Canada that will bring tar sands uh, on fuel, etc. But the trade-off is the environmentalists say it's bad for all of those issues. It becomes a big political football. I see here in the UK that um, uh, the greenest uh, government in the world may have difficulties doing it because of the need for industry uh, not to put out so much money. But I think that the whole priority of this terribly important problem has slipped. Uh, I'll tell you one thing, when we were at the, um, in Copenhagen and we were talking about putting money towards all the problems and when India was asked to uh, make their contribution and the answer was uh, I can't make any contribution any money I have has to go to eradicate poverty and if anybody's been in Beijing lately you know the pollution problem isn't going down it's going up so my, my comment is how important it is but how frightful I am that it's becoming less and less of a priority Lewis, thanks very much. Uh, I'm afraid we've run out of time. Um, I'm going to hand over in a moment to Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence to close uh, the session. Uh, but I'd just like to say I think we've had a fascinating discussion here this morning uh, among f four very uh, informed uh, speakers uh, with tremendous insights into uh, what is happening in the world. Uh, the tone has been gloomy, but I think it would be nice to, if we could uh, focus on what Martin calls the upside risks as we go away. And uh, although he said uh, the Western anomaly is over, I think 500 years isn't a bad run. <laughs> um, so if you could just thank the panellists. Uh, And Julia, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, a year ago, the FT said that the Ideas Conference such as these is here to stay. A year ago, the Economist in its pre-Davos predictions said that 
more powerful than blood or money is the power of ideas. And that's sort of what we're about. I think that's what you're about. That's why you've got up here early in the morning. That's why we run a forum such as this. I think we couldn't have had a more spectacular panel. I've never seen everybody scribbling. You're all students of ideas. And I just would like to thank Martin for chairing and the panel and the Financial Times and our team of organisers behind the scenes. And thank you for coming. Thank you.